The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... The entire program for September 2006 is devoted to the survival story of Mike Hinkson, who, along with his guide dog Roselle, escaped from the World Trade Center following the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. Here's his story from the opening session of the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind, recorded on July 9, 2006. It's an honor to be here. I was very moved in reading the agenda to see the very first line, Bridges to Opportunity. Bridges are not architectural structures that appear by accident. Bridges are made because of organization, because of thought, because of the endeavors of many people. Well, likewise, the bridges that I think are referred to in the agenda are no different. Many bridges are built with pylons driven deep into the ground to anchor them. Likewise, bridges to opportunity are built with pylons. Pylons such as perseverance, preparation, and the greatest of all, partnership. All three of those pylons are very important to me and to my story. Preparation is probably a good place to start. I was fortunate to be born into a family where my parents felt that it was important for me to be prepared to function just like anyone else in the world. And so they said, you may be blind, but you're going to have the same responsibilities as the next guy, including your brother. From them and from so many life experiences, I learned that blindness is not the handicap that I or any of you face. Rather, the handicap we face is the attitude that we may have about ourselves and the misconceptions that we may have, as well as the attitudes and the misconceptions of others. And we need to be prepared to deal with that and to change those attitudes and to change those misconceptions by building bridges to opportunity. So I grew up occasionally facing some challenges that helped prepare me to understand the reality of what my attitude would cause me to face throughout life. I chose to believe that I could do whatever I needed to do. I know that there are some things that today I don't do, like drive a car most of the time. I don't generally fly airplanes, but I've done that too. But the fact is that those are things that over time will become technologically possible because of technology bridges that will be built. You know, 130 or 140 years ago, our sighted friends had a really hard time doing anything in the dark. It wasn't a problem for us. Then Thomas Edison came along and built a reasonable accommodation for them that we call the electric light. <laughs> Perseverance. We do face a lot of challenges in our lives. We do face a lot of poor attitudes and misconceptions, and they're not all ours. You've heard already this evening, through court cases and through so many different kinds of endeavors that your organization is addressing, 
how we have to deal with the issue of blindness and what people think about it. We can and will change that. We have the opportunity to do it and through perseverance we will change what it means to be blind in the United States. I have had the fortune of being reasonably successful in my life in sales. Primarily I've worked for various computer companies. My first job in the computer industry was working for a company which some of you may have heard of, Kurzweil Computer Products. My last position was working as the director of operations and the regional sales manager for Quantum Corporation in an office on the 78th floor of Tower 1 of the World Trade Center. 78 floors is awful high. It was so high that my cell phone didn't work that high most of the time. 78 floors is over a thousand feet in the air. Escaping on 9-11 was something that I was able to do because of preparation and perseverance and also very much because of partnership, my favorite topic to talk about. I use a guide dog. Roselle and I have been together now almost seven years. She is my fifth guide dog. I received my first guide dog at the age of 14 back in 1964. So I've been using guide dogs for 42 years. I've learned the concept of teamwork or partnership. I've learned that each member of the team has a job to do. Roselle has hers and I have mine. And I am the team leader, but we both need to respect each other and what each of us has to do to make the team successful. My job is to know where to go and how to get there, and her job is to make sure that we get there safely. We would go in, and most of the time she would be under my desk, kind of just sleeping the day away. She would make it a habit to greet anyone who came into the office. That was her job. She figured they really came to see her. But she would sleep under the desk most of the time. On 9-11, my staff was out doing their jobs and not in the office. I was in the office because we were going to be doing some special training of some of our reseller partners, people who would buy our products and then resell them as part of larger systems to firms to which they had access. We were expecting 50 people in the office that day. In addition to Roselle and me, the only other quantum employee was David Frank, who was actually in for the meetings from our office in California. David was not a resident of the office, and I don't recall now whether David had actually spent time in the office before. If he had, it was only like one day there were five other folks. Some of our reseller partners had begun to arrive. At 8.45, they were in the conference room. David and I were in my office completing final preparations. The PowerPoint projector was all set, all the things that we needed to do to do the training. And suddenly, we heard a muffled explosion, and we felt the building lurch. Now, in a building that tall, they are actually very springy. In a windstorm, you can expect that you would feel the building begin to move a little bit, sway back and forth. They're made to do that. However, they're not made to move great distances like we felt on 9-11. In fact, when the building began to move, I had enough time to do what I was trained to do, having lived all of my life in California. I went to the nearest doorway. I lived on top of the San Andreas Fault growing up. This wasn't an earthquake. The building wasn't shaking back and forth. It was moving in one direction. It kept tipping and tipping and tipping. I believed it moved a good 20 feet. 
It took so long to move that as I said I got to the doorway, Roselle was still under my desk, David was holding on to my desk. David and I actually said goodbye to each other because we thought that the building was going to fall to the street. And then it stopped and it came back to its normal position. I went back into the office, met Roselle coming out from under my desk, and as soon as I took her leash and told her to sit, the building dropped six feet. We learned later that that was exactly what it should do because the expansion joints that would allow the building to sway contracted. But we didn't know that at the time. David, as soon as the building stopped moving, released his hold on my desk, turned and looked out the window and started shouting, Oh my God, there's fire and smoke above us and there are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside our window. I could hear the paper falling. I didn't smell smoke. It hadn't reached us through the ventilation system. I believed him though. Our guests began to scream. They started running for our exits. And David kept saying, there are millions of pieces of paper falling. Mike, we've got to get out of here right now. And I kept saying, David, slow down a little bit. And he said, no, you don't understand. You can't see it. There's fire and smoke and millions of pieces of paper falling outside the window. So picture the scene, right? He's seeing all this going on and the blind guy is saying, slow down. <laughs> I had taken all of the fire drill and disaster preparedness courses that the World Trade Center Port Authority had to offer. And I knew what to do, if at all possible, in the case of an emergency. I did that for my own survival. I knew that I would be in the office on many occasions when others would not be there. So it was important for me to know what to do. I couldn't wait for somebody to read the signs if there was a fire and we were trying to get out, and especially if the building were full of smoke. However, there wasn't smoke. Nevertheless, I knew something that David didn't know, which is why I told him to slow down. Remember I told you that I met Roselle coming out from under my desk. I told her to sit. She did. Kind of was thumping her tail. Sitting, yawning. David was shouting about the millions of pieces of burning paper. Roselle was not reacting at all. If you know anything about guide dogs, you know that the bond that we have is a very close, loving relationship. Roselle is certainly going to be very concerned about her own ability to stay out of danger, and she's also going to be concerned about protecting me because that's the love and the bond that we have. Roselle was not reacting as if she sensed that we were in danger in any way. And so even though I believed everything that David said, I also knew that Roselle was telling me by her actions that we were not in such imminent danger that we could not follow the precepts that the Port Authority had taught us to evacuate safely. I finally got David to focus. I got him to get our guests to our door, get them from our office to the stairs, and to start them down. And I told him, after they're gone, we will leave. Our guests got to the stairs, then David came back. Meanwhile, I called my wife, Karen, who was at our home in New Jersey, I told her that there had been an explosion or something had happened and that we were evacuating. David came back, we went to the stairs, and we began our descent down the stairs. Almost immediately, I began smelling an odor. Now, you understand that we didn't know what happened. What we learned later was that the airplane struck the building on the 96th floor on the other side of the building from us, so no one on my side of the building knew what had happened. I began smelling an odor, as I said, once we started down, and it took a couple of floors to comprehend that what I was smelling was the vapors from burning jet fuel. I mentioned it to other people. They also agreed that what we were smelling was burning jet fuel. 
we all agree that an airplane must have struck the tower. We didn't know the details, we didn't know where, and we didn't know for sure that that's what happened, but we assumed it. We all began working together to get out of the tower. We speculated, we talked, there were a couple of occasions where people from above us yelled that they had a burn victim that they were trying to get down the stairs, please move to the side. The stairs were wide enough to do that and so we did. Then a woman near us on the stairs stopped and said, I can't breathe, I can't go on, we're not going to make it out. We all stopped, all of us near her on the stairs, had a group hug, literally, and said, look, we're in this together. Come on, you can do it. Let's keep going. And we did. David said, Mike, we're going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. And I said, stop it, David. If Roselle and I can go down these stairs, so can you. And he did. He was able to continue down. And in fact, he went ahead of us and kind of acted as an advanced scout for everyone above him on the stairs. And he told me later that that was his way of focusing and keeping his mind off of what was going on. We all were trying to fathom what was happening. We were trying to keep ourselves together, both by talking with each other and working within ourselves. I knew that I had to focus on Roselle and encourage her because if she felt that I were in danger, if she felt that I were losing it, that was going to make it tough for her. I was able to encourage her, to focus on her, not worry about my own fears much, and as a result of that, she was able to continue to guide, which in turn helped me because I knew that as long as she was feeling comfortable and guiding, that we were great. We went down the stairs until we finally reached the 30th floor, and David, who had been ahead of us, shouted up that he saw firemen coming up the stairs. So we all moved to the side to let the firemen go by, but not before I got down to where David was and asked him to describe what he was seeing. And he said what he was seeing were firemen coming up the stairs, all dressed in their heavy protective clothing. He said they were all carrying heavy equipment on their backs, fire axes, oxygen cylinders, all the things that they needed to use to fight the fires. They were coming up. Yet, when they each got to me, they stopped. And they said, hey, buddy, are you okay? Do you need any help getting down the stairs? And I said, no, I'm fine. And they said, no, really, we want to make sure that you get down safely. And I said, hey, I got my guide dog here. We're in good shape. No problem. And they said, but really, we're concerned that you get down okay. Well, you know, it really wasn't the time to give them a lecture about blindness isn't the handicap. <laughs> so I took the easy way out, and I said, I've got my buddy David Frank here. David and I and Roselle are going down the stairs. We're okay. Can we help you? And other people said, yeah, can we help you? Because they were going up, carrying all of this stuff, and all we were doing was getting out of the building. And they said, no, you need to go down and get out. That's your job. Our job is to go off and fight the fires. They weren't saying anything about what was going on up there. They petted Roselle. Wasn't the time to tell them, don't pet the dog in harness. <laughs> there are times that you make changes and you make allowances for rules. Roselle was giving them lots of kisses, the last unconditional love those folks got. And then they were gone. That is my most poignant memory of what happened on 9-11. Whenever I talk about it, I get a bit choked up. But I also know that they who went up the stairs to fight whatever was occurring up there are the real heroes of 9-11. I never ask people to have a moment of silence for them because I think that, and I've talked to firemen since who have said, that we should celebrate their lives. So would you please, once again, put your hands together for the heroes we lost.
And I'm sure wherever they are, they heard that. Thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate it. We continued down and finally made it to the first floor. David, of course, had assumed a position ahead of us. When he got to the floor, he said there is a curtain of water. The sprinklers are on. You're going to have to run through water to get out of the stairwell. And then he was gone. We got to the first floor. I told Roselle to go forward and hop up. And we burst through this torrent of water coming down out into the lobby of Tower 1. Normally just a typical office building. But now, ankle deep in water, every step you took, you felt something break underfoot because of the marble that had fallen and the tiles from the ceilings and so on. And people were shouting. It was this chaotic scene. People were saying, go over here, over here. There were firemen, Port Authority people, FBI people. There were police officers all directing traffic, none of which was to go outside, but rather into the central part of the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was actually a group of towers that surrounded a central area. On the first floor, it was a shopping mall. Typically, there would be thousands of people in that shopping mall. Now, it was dead silent as we ran through about 9.40 in the morning. You could hear your footfalls as we passed the banks, the escalators down to the subway, to the pass station. We finally went up an escalator and out a door as far away from the Twin Towers as we could possibly be. At 9.45, we made it out into the sunshine for the very first time. David looked around and saw fire in the second tower. We thought that it had just jumped across from our tower when our tower was moving toward the second tower. We didn't know what had really happened. So we decided to go to a car that David had parked in a lot right across from Tower 2. We walked across the street and then we circled back around to get to his car. And when we were about 100 yards away from his car, which also put us about 100 yards away from Tower 2, we stopped at a street corner. David took some pictures. I tried to call my wife Karen on the phone. I just put my phone away and David was putting his camera away when a police officer yelled, get out of here, it's coming down. And suddenly we heard this rumble that turned into this deafening roar. The best way I can describe it is it was a kind of a combination between a freight train and a waterfall. You could hear the glass breaking and metal wrenching apart, things beginning to fall. It was Tower 2 collapsing and we were 100 yards away from this 400 yard tall building. Everyone turned and ran for their lives. No one was helping anyone. Everyone was running in a panic. David was long gone. Roselle and I turned and ran back the way we had come, back toward Fulton Street. And I remember thinking as soon as I began to run, the first thought I had was, God, I can't believe that you allowed us to get out of a building just to have it fall on us. And I can only tell you what happened at that point. You can choose to believe it or whatever. But I know that as soon as I thought that thought, I heard a voice in my head that said, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on running with Roselle and the rest will take care of itself. And I believe that, that that voice of God, that inner voice, was what brought to me a peace and a knowledge that if Roselle and I worked together that we could escape this. So we ran. I kept telling Roselle, hop up. I don't know whether she could hear me. I was also using hand signals. She guided perfectly. We got to Fulton Street, turned right, ran into David. We caught up with David. <laughs> David was just as glad. We began to run, the three of us, and soon were engulfed in this dust cloud. The dust and debris was so thick, 
that, as David described it later, he couldn't see his hand six inches in front of his face. I can tell you that it was so thick that we were breathing in more dirt and debris than we were breathing in air. We literally were drowning in the dust cloud from Tower 2's collapse. Our priorities suddenly shifted from running away to get out of the, the way of that falling building to getting inside or somewhere out of that horrible air. There was a building on our right. I kept telling Roselle, right inside, go right. David was looking. I was listening for the opening. And suddenly I heard an opening to my right. David saw it. Roselle saw it. Roselle turned, took a step, and stopped dead. It goes back to partnership, to trust. If Roselle stopped, I reasoned there had to be a reason, and there was. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. She stopped at the top of a flight of stairs. We went down the flight of stairs into the building, the entrance to a subway station. When we got to the bottom of the stairs, I heard a woman crying near me saying, I can't see. My eyes are full of dirt. I can't see. Someone help me. I don't want to fall down the stairs. I was nearest to her. I took her arm and I said, hey, don't worry. I happen to be blind, but I've got a guide dog and Roselle will make sure that neither of us fall down the stairs. A few seconds later, a gentleman came up in the subway, introduced himself as Lou. He was an employee of the subway system. He took us to an employee locker room down in the subway system, and the air was a whole lot better down there. There was a fan blowing air around. There were water fountains. There were benches that we could sit on, and we sat there for about 15 minutes, not knowing what was going on, certainly still alive. Then a police officer came and said, you need to leave from here now. He just turned without any discussion, walked away. We all followed him like sheep up the stairs, through the arcade, up the final set of stairs and outside. And as soon as we got out, David looked around and he said, oh my, my God, there's no Tower 2 anymore. I asked him what he saw and he said, all I see is fire and smoke going hundreds of feet in the air, just these clouds of smoke. We stood there for a moment and then we just turned and continued to walk away from all that had occurred. We walked about 10 minutes or so, and then we heard that freight train waterfall sound again, and we knew that it was our building coming down. Our building, as we learned later, wasn't as seriously damaged at first, which is why it stayed up longer. Nevertheless, it was coming down. David looked back, and he saw a dust cloud coming at us. We thought we were far enough away that we weren't too concerned about flying pieces. But the dust cloud came. We ran to the side to get out of its way. We were able to do so. We closed our eyes just in case. We stood there, and when the sound faded, the wind died, and the dust was gone. We opened our eyes, and David looked back, and he said, Mike, oh my God, there's no World Trade Center anymore. Again, we stood there in shock, not able to comprehend, not able to understand. A couple of minutes later, I tried my wife again on the phone. This time I got through, and Karen was the one who told us how two planes had deliberately been crashed into the two towers of the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and a fourth was missing over Pennsylvania. The rest of the day, we worked our way up toward Midtown Manhattan. 
Eventually, the trains and the buses began to run somewhat, and I was able to make my way back home to New Jersey, and David went on up to the Upper East Side to stay with some friends. We got home at 7 o'clock that night to the train station in Westfield, and I was met by Karen and a longtime friend who came to be with her, not even knowing if I was alive or dead as soon as he heard about what was going on at the train center. Tom Painter was driving our wheelchair accessible van because Karen also is disabled. Works out well, she reads, I push. <laughs> not anymore, she uses a power chair and now I have to run. <laughs> Tom was there to help, to do what he could and we all went home to try to fathom out what had occurred, try to understand it. And then Roselle really put it in perspective. She was the first to really move on. At that time, we had our, my retired guide, Linny. As soon as we got home and I took the harness off, even though Roselle was caked in dust, her biggest priority was going and playing a game of tug-of-war with Linny. <laughs> so that told me that we needed to do a couple of things, like feed her. That stopped the tugging. The next day, I contacted Guide Dogs for the Blind at Karen's suggestion, and through interaction with Joanne Ritter, our Director of Marketing and Communications. The press heard about our story. We allowed that. Two days later, we were on Larry King Live, Roselle and I. And then we started getting a lot of calls from the press, from others. Karen and I sat and talked about it. Did we want our lives to be disrupted? Did we want to take all of that, knowing what it was going to mean as far as what time we had to do other things. But we decided, collectively, if it would help guide dogs and its fundraising efforts, if it would help people more understand blindness and have a little bit better view of our capabilities, and if it would help people move on from 9-11, then it was worth it. And so we took the calls. But I think it helps. We all need to move on from 9-11. The thing that irked me the most after 9-11 was when people said, we need to get our lives back and, and we need to get back to normal. Normal will never be the same again. Normal for us as blind people changes on a regular basis anyway. But normal will never be the same again. In February of 2002, after receiving an offer from Bob Phillips to come and be a part of the Guide Dogs family, and for the past four and a half years, I've worked to be a part of the Guide Dogs family and also travel around the world literally talking about the things that we've talked about tonight. Partnerships, most of all. The mission statement at Guide Dogs for the Blind, I think, is appropriate. It's a new statement. It's using the power of partnering to improve quality of life. How true that is in so many ways. But partnerships don't come without preparation and without perseverance. And all three of those make some of those bridges to opportunity that we've talked about. We can move forward. We need to think inside the box, our individual toolboxes. We have so many tools that we underrate within our own persons, within our own bodies. We have the strength to move forward. We have the strength to persevere. 
We have the strength to prepare. We have the ability to partner and make the world a much different and a much better place for those of us who are blind. Let's do it. You've been listening to Mike Hinkson of Guide Dogs for the Blind, recorded at the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in Jacksonville, Florida. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on Radio Information Services Nationwide on Side 4 of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.